0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
3: The garden has chaste elements and rather sort of sexy elements. Mm. It has classicism, which is rational, and it has a gothic, which is exotic. Yeah.
2: That was Timothy Mole discussing the appeal of the historic Rousham House and Gardens.
4: So the thing is, if you give Latin Americans a crown, they will want to entertain. Whereas I think Northern European nations, um, for the most part, want to get a job done. You know, they want to victory.
2: And that was Andreas Campomar talking to us about Latin American football. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good newsagents, or you can take out a subscription from wherever you are. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for our latest subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. The 18th century saw a revolution in garden landscaping, headed by the Yorkshire-born artist and architect, William Kent, whose informal, free-flowing designs could be found at country houses across England. We sent our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, armed with an umbrella, to meet Professor Timothy Mole, at Rousham Gardens in Oxfordshire, to find out more about the remarkable polymath who contributed so much to English garden history.
0: Okay, so Tim, we're standing here in the in the rain um, at Rousham Gardens in Oxfordshire. Um, tell us a little bit about what we're looking at now
3: well we're in venus's Vale, which is the heart of the garden Mm -hmm. the sort of sexual heart of the garden in many ways and there are two cascades in front of us two arched structures one quite close and one in the distance and on top of the one in the distance Mm -hmm. is venus she's a modest venus she's naked and she's hiding her modesty and she is protected by two very fierce swans but on the left and the right of her one statue of a pan and the other one of a leering fawn
0: they're rather sinister aren't they (laughs)
3: they're oppressing her sexually Mm. and this is the whole point of this part of the garden it's Kent's mind games with us to suggest that we have uh, sex we have oppression in the middle of this garden
0: yeah Why was he... I mean, was he given free reign to design the garden? Was he... You know, why did he decide to to make this sort of subject? Good
3: good question. I mean, General Dormer, the owner who got him in in the late 1730s, early Mm. 1840s, um, got him to do two basically two um, drawings of yeah. the garden, as Kent envisaged it. But then Kent was hardly ever here, and most of the planting that went on was done um, by the steward and the head gardener. The head gardener, particularly a um, man called John McClary, was very important in laying it out. Yeah. So although Kent suggested where garden buildings should go and how the design should be effected, he was hardly ever here to right. uh, sort it out.
0: And is, is, um, is this a typical landscape garden of the
3: time? It is, a, of, of this early yeah. 18th century period. The whole point of these gardens is they're meant to be interactive, both mm. physically but intellectually as well. Yeah. So you don't walk around them and look at lovely shows of daffs. Everything is very, very intellectual and sophisticated. One has to know the classics particularly, because often these gardens have Latin inscriptions, um, and garden buildings and statues are all telling a story. Mm. And the great thing about this garden is the way in which Kent takes us around the garden in this original design of his and we're meant to look at various places and we're meant to think certain things
0: okay so i mean where else would you in the garden would you say is particularly sort of typical of you know of kent trying to get a message across
3: to people um uh, by the house mm-hmm. there's a, a bowling green which was part of the original design by yeah. charles Bridgman. kent came along and softened Bridgman's rather angular lines and at that point there's a terrace and you look out into the landscape from the terrace high up above the declivity and the river charwell in the bottom of the valley yeah and you're meant to look at nature and see that nature outside the garden is all part of the garden and Kent did this very cleverly by putting garden structures even on land that the dormers didn't own mm-hmm. to bring the country calling in the country to be yeah. part of the landscape so that's a very clever way in which he leapt the bounds and saw that all nature was a garden at that point the, there are little Gothic seats. Mm. And next to them are classical herms with classical deities, heads of classical deities, yeah. and these all tell an intellectual story at the time.
0: I mean, the, I mean, these gardens were incredibly popular, weren't they, during the eighteenth yeah. century? Yeah. Where did they originate? Where did they, where, what what caused the gardens to change in their design? Well, Kent
3: particularly spent nine years in Rome, and Rome, okay. uh, when he came back from Italy, uh, he could speak sort of quite bad Italian, actually <laughs> better than his English. He had very odd English because uh, he was a, a Yorkshireman. Okay. Um, that's not to say that Yorkshire <laughs> would have got bad English, but he, his, his Italian was probably a bit, a bit better, certainly written anyway. Yeah. Um, so he would see all of, he would have seen all the great gardens in the Roman Campania, and particularly Palestrina, and one of his garden buildings, Prineste, which is a beautiful arcaded loggia here, um, is inspired by the terraces at Palestrina. So it's effectively an Italianate garden, but in England, in the climate yeah. that we've got, as, it, as we've said before, it's pouring with rain here at the moment but it seems to be quite perfect for a green and white garden of this period
0: and who would have um, seen these gardens were they open to the public
3: yeah it's a good question i mean we tend to be garden tourists now Mm, don't we we go all over the place to uh, pay our national trust entrance fee and go and see gardens well in the 18th century these gardens were open to the public but generally when the owners weren't in uh, in residence Um, and on the outside of the garden by the main road uh, there 's a what 's called the um, cow castle it 's a, a little building for pay for the cows, mm-hmm. but there 's a seat on the outside of it, and the steward would sit at the seat and would take your ticket okay. there uh, as a, as a almost like a paying um, like a paying guest yeah. or a paying customer coming into the garden. If you were staying with the family, of course, you would walk the garden from the house, so there are two different ways of walking the garden, one from the house and one from the main road if you 're a visitor. Um, and I, I, I sort of stress the point about walking the garden because all of these gardens have circuits yep. and you have to do them correctly and one of the reasons why you know, we need to know more about these gardens is that when people do come to walk and enjoy them mm. now yeah we haven't got the classical education that, that they had in the 18th century and we need to educate people to walk them correctly and to get the right nuances and excitements yeah. and intellectual engagement that they got in the 18th century
0: it's getting a bit western right here so should, we, should we, wander we have up to the uh to the pine estate, yes Okay, so We've shared a little bit from the rain now. Um, tell me a little about, about William Kent. Um, how did he come to design this, this, this garden?
3: Well, in the 1730s, um, after about 1733, uh, he sort of set himself free from his main uh, mentor, who was Lord Burlington. Yes. And he'd worked with Burlington at Chiswick um, in London and in, in the mid-1730s he more or less set out on his own as a, a landscape designer um, and it was said at the time that he worked without line or level and that basically means that he would come to an estate and he would look at it and very much like Capability Brown of the next generation, he would work out what the capabilities of the terrain were yeah. and how he could reshape it and reform it and loosen up the angularities, particularly if he came to a garden like this that had already been designed. Yeah. Um, so he He became, in the 1730s, one of the most important landscape designers that people would go to for designs, particularly if they wanted makeovers. Because it's very interesting about the 18th century. Most of the big houses are built in the 1720s, and it's the next generation that comes along that inherit both houses and gardens, and they want to change things. So he doesn't do gardens afresh. He's all the time changing things that are already there, like he does here at Rousham. Yeah. So um, very, very important designer until he dies in 1748. So from 33 to 48, he's the main man. Uh, by which time Capability Brown, who started work at Stowe, where, of course, Kent had done the Elysian Fields, a mm-hmm. really important part of the gardens at Stowe, um, he was ready then to set up as the next landscape gardener. Yeah. So it obviously goes in generations like
0: that. Mm. I mean, I've noticed as we were walking around, there's a lot of water incorporated into the garden. Yeah. Um, does that have any meaning? Is that just again to loosen up the, the look of the
2: garden? Yes.
3: I mean, we're, we're sitting here in Praeneste, which is this lovely arcaded loggia mm. looking down. We're high up above the River Charwell yeah. uh, with. Fields in the distance. The Charwell, when he got here, had been canalised by Bridgman, so it was very angular. It's like an angular canal with a right angle here, and he made it much more serpentine Mm -hmm. and contoured the banks of the river to make it looser and softer and smoother. And he did exactly the same with all of the planting. So you have open glades, you have woods you have lots of laurel um, and lots of box but not rigid everything loose and of course at the time Nature, particularly in the poetry, is always seen um, as a as a feminine spirit, and so he's caressing nature. It's nature's tresses that mm. he is trying to um, smooth out for yes. us.
0: But then you sort of have a contrast. You have some very masculine statues and yes. things like that, don't you? Sort of yes. looming out of some of the trees.
3: Exactly. Um, yes.
0: Can you tell us about some of the, some of those? Some of the key pieces here.
3: Well, uh, probably the most important one is the Antinous, um, and it's interesting that you know might on it is that uh, it is uh, Hadrian's male lover mm-hmm. who died rather mysteriously in the Nile because at the, fo- at the feet of the Antonus statue there are um, rushes suggestive of of a river and the Nile. In the past, it's been called the Apollo or it's been called the Colossus. Um, One of the difficulties is that uh, MacLarry, the head gardener, writes about this garden and takes us on a tour of the garden so we know which way to do it. And uh, He's not quite sure what it is, but he's a gardener. In my view, it is the Antonis because General Dormer was very interested uh, in uh, this ideal of male beauty. And he had three bronzes in the house of the Antonus. So I'm pretty confident it's the Antonus. But then at other parts of the garden, you will have a statue of Ceres, statue mm. of Flora. So there are feminine as well as masculine yeah. um, statues. But this is all part of the binary nature of the garden. The garden has chaste elements and rather sort of sexy elements. Mm. It has classicism, which is rational, and it has a gothic, which is exotic yeah. and rather romantic. It has light and it has shade. So it's this sort of binary notion all the time throughout the whole of the garden as you're walking through it and after Kent's death, did it change very much
0: at all? Is it, no. is it now, today as it would have been back yeah, in the well this is, this
3: is what's so fantastic, and I'm sure the family won't mind me saying this, is that they um, have not had huge loads of money mm. coming in at different generations to change everything. This garden's been here since it was finished in the 1740s. It's probably the rarest garden for that reason in the mm. whole of the country, because it's so unchanged. And um, the dormers, and now they're the Cottrell dormers, Charles and Angela have done the most wonderful thing here in restoring it and maintaining it so that all of the laurels for instance are at the right height they have to be at the right height particularly for moonlight because they they reflect moonlight beautifully and they, oh, right. they've got to be about four foot high not more than that yeah. and you go to some gardens and they've grown over too much yeah. but the great thing about the owners here is that they are very in- intelligent and yeah. sophisticated about what they've got they realize quite Im- how important it yeah. is i mean we're sitting here in pine estate on a seat designed, mm. one of seven designed by Kent and it's the most beautiful, beautiful seat it looks like yeah. a piece of Wedgwood it but does, it's, fi- does. it's 50 years earlier yeah. this is how important Kent is he is very prescient in his views about um, landscape gardening, about architecture and about furniture as well. He's a polymath Yes, and one of the great polymaths of the 18th century
0: yeah. Did he have any input into the house at all?
3: Yes, he did um, the library, extraordinary okay. library with a, a very weird canopied roof um, and also the parlour and the parlour is very interesting because it's got very early grotesque work which is a sort of decorative work based on um, antique sources on the ceiling Mm -hmm. Um, and interestingly pan uh, is in that ceiling and we've got a statue of pan here in the garden. Yeah. So he was he was trying to create a room that at least with a ceiling connected with what he was trying to do in the gardens.
0: Where did this kind of passion for the, the classical and the, the gothic come from? Was that new in the eighteenth century?
3: Yes, I suppose it was. I mean certainly the early part of the century um, all of the Whig aristocracy that you know obviously were in power since from seventeen fourteen hmm. when George I came over, they were all interested in the antique past they all went on the grand tour, the aristocrats were talking about um, and they were looking back to Augustine and Rome and the way to look back to Augustine Rome was to go on the Grand Tour and to see all of the antique yeah. buildings that survived. Kent, as I said, spent nine years in Rome, so he comes back to England, works with Burlington, and Burlington tries to create an antique style with mm. Kent by looking back to the antique world. And this is what this is all about here at uh, Rousham. As the 1730s and 40s progressed, we started to get to know a lot more about the history of our own country. Um, The cathedrals, the great cathedrals books, were written in the 1720s and 30s, Mm -hmm. and people then started to get interested in a national, indigenous, native style, which of course is Gothic. So here in this garden, we have classical buildings, which are antique, and we also have little Gothic buildings, which are much more to do with England's past.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, what what, sort of, what came after the, the landscape garden? What, what, how did it? Evolve? The wretched
3: Capability Brown, sadly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not a fan, or? Well, I'm, not, I'm not a fan because I mean, as you can see, uh, you know, I think this is probably one of the greatest gardens in mm. the country. It's, it's so beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. and it's so simple, mm. and it's so wonderfully interactive. I mean, what's interesting going around it? We haven't been able to see it very much, have we? But no. we've been able to walk it, and then be surprised by what we've seen yes the, yes. the problem with gardens beforehand the big formal gardens you just stand on a terrace and you can see everything, the problem with the gardens after this period in the 1760s and 70s when Brown really gets going is that they are just parks, they're landscape parks Mm. Now, they were laid out for aristocrats who wanted shooting estates. They wanted to, you know, slaughter all these birds on the wing. Um, They wanted to ride around in fast carriages. They wanted parks to look like ordinary, natural landscape. And that's what Brown gave them. Yeah. But we lost all the intellectual engagement because of that. We lost all the garden buildings and actually we lost a lot of people because lots of people in the landscape were taken away from the landscape. So that's why I'm not really a fan. I mean, I like gardens to uh, intellectually engage me and in my mm. teaching, this is what I try and tell all my students, you know, too often people go around gardens and they're very passive. Yes. They just look at things, oh, a lovely show daffs there and oh, that's a nice parterre and oh, I bet they have to do a lot of dusting in this room yeah. oh. and i want people to engage with mm. how they engage with gardens at the time yeah. and this is the great period for it from about 1730 to around about 1760 because by 1760 brown is doing all his great big landscape gardens like blenheim bowwood petworth um, huge huge parklands but what can you do with them? What mm. can you see in them? You just walk them. The lakes are beautifully designed, they've got shelter belts on the outside, they've got clumps of trees, there may be a boathouse. That's it.
0: Yeah, It's all sorts of handed to you on a plate, isn't it, really? Those it, is. Of the gardens. it is. And I mean,
3: it's the pendulum swing as well. We've lost the intellectual uh, element that we've got here. We then get Brown, and then of course Brown's successor is Humphrey Repton. And Humphrey Repton comes along and thinks, well, I've got to try and do a Brown to start with, because I'm... Uh, I'm his self-styled successor. Mm. But he suddenly realises that it'd be nice to bring people back into the garden. It'd be nice to get garden buildings in. Actually, it'd be nice to bring flowers back. So he then starts to create a completely new design from about 1792.
0: And did Kent um, have have much to do with uh, the planting and the the types of flowers and trees and plants that were...
3: Very little, very little. I think his designing is garden buildings particularly, yeah. um, and we have loads and loads of drawings of his for all the garden buildings. Um, and uh, the actual layout he would have talked through, probably with the head steward, a man called White here, yeah. as well as McClary, John McClary, the head gardener. But in terms of the actual plants themselves, not very much. His drawings have got fir trees, and they have got box hedges. Mm. Um, I don't even think, you know, you can see a laurel, although laurels are very much of this period. We tend to think of those as 19th century plants but mm. they are very much part of this garden. Okay. So no, I mean unlike someone like Repton who would know a lot more about plants um, Kent, is, Kent is green and white greenery, yeah. often evergreenery, white classical garden buildings.
0: There's also some, some practical elements to the garden as so well we were walking around earlier when we were doing the photos and you pointed out like a plunge pool didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was part of the original garden? Yes. Yeah?
3: That we think is probably a Bridgman uh, feature that again um, Kent softens and makes more natural. Yeah. Um, and it's a rill with water running through it. If McCLary's letter to his employers telling them desperately to come back to Rousham because there's this wonderful garden, they're off in London, um, this is the next generation after General Dormer, um, there, are, there were fish in that rill and Very fish good. going into the octagonal coal bar. Oh, wow. And it was a cold bath, next to it was a little kiosk where mm. you would change, and men would strip naked, and they would take the cold water as part of what was called their regimen, which is, to us, um, you know, going down the gym, like yeah. I was this morning. <laughs> um, before I came out here, it's you know to keep yourself fit and active. Yeah. Um, riding obviously is terribly important, uh, but also is taking cold water. So this would be this would be men only. I was
0: going to say yeah, men oh, only. Yeah. Men
3: ladies only. Yes. Ladies <laughs> la- would be having a cup of tea somewhere else. Strolling around the, the gardens, yes. And this is what we've we've sort of lost a bit. I mean, we tend to go and visit gardens, mm. and those of us are fortunate to have gardens will tend them. But in the 18th century, these were places for people to eat for people to talk to one another uh, to converse I mean Isha, uh, Kent's wonderful garden, there's a, a portrait of uh, Thomas Pelham and he's sitting in a garden building with his secretary doing um, matters of stage, you oh know, wow. doing business yeah. so we've seemed to have lost that notion that, that gardens were so important for people yeah. to get away from teaming servants, to have privacy to go and be together and we were talking earlier as we were doing the photo shoot all of Jane Austen's proposals take, part in, you know, take place do. in gardens mm. and generally in shrubberies where you can be private.
0: Yeah, and there's lots of little kind of nooks and crannies to so these gardens, aren't there? Like, yeah, you know, uh, those little buildings and, and statues. Um, no, it's they're an absolutely beautiful garden, so it's sort of bit of a hidden gem isn't
3: it in- well it is and it, i mean if i can say again something about the way it's presented mm-hmm, uh, you go to a national trust property and you know I've nothing about the national trust they do a wonderful thing and you know you have a lovely tea room or mm-hmm. a restaurant and it's got local produce and everything is organized for you here in the garden there is nothing you buy a ticket at a ticket machine and you walk the gardens there's no tea shop there's no razzmatazz, Mm, there's actually no signage, so this is a garden that you need to understand in a sense before you come here, but this is the great thing about it, it's here to be explored, and if you read the right things before you come, you can appreciate it. Uh, Children under 15 are not even allowed, and again, uh, many people might think that that's wrong. But this is, this is a garden for the older intellect. When mm. I say the older intellect post-15, you know, my, <laughs> my, my daughter can come next year <laughs> at last. Yeah. But it's, it's the way that it's presented. You know, there are windfalls that you can take by the um, ticket machine. And this is, in a sense, how gardens always were. Yeah. Um, and we've made this industry of them. Um, good things about it and bad things about it. But this is why I love this place so much. Mm. I don't feel as though I'm going to be here with anybody else, and we've been here all after, all morning. Mm. And we've not met anybody.
0: No, no. And just finally, um, we walked past another statue earlier um, of a lion.
3: Um, oh yes, attacking lying, uh, lying attacking a horse. Yes. Well, again, what's so exciting about this guy? It's rather a bit like modern art. You mm. know, you can make whatever interpretation you want of it. But my view, I think, is that um, that's untamed nature which is the lion, yeah. and tamed nature, mm. which is the horse. Because, you know, man tames yeah. a horse. Whereas, you know, unless you're a lion tamer in a circus, you can't really tame no. lions. So I think you have wild nature and tamed nature, just like you have here in the garden. So yeah. I think that's one uh, one thread. Mm. Uh, but I think the other one is that it's quite an horrific statue, do you think? Mm, I mean,
0: yeah, it is. It's quite shocking when you yeah. when you walk past it. Yeah. You know, it
3: well, you stop. I, I think it's all part of um, a walk through the garden at that point that is trying to explain to you the horrors of war. Right, okay. Yeah. So you've got that really horrific image and then you walk from that statue into a very very dark area of uh, the landscape. We know that because it was planted up mm. with very, very dark plants and you walk past that with very, very few views out and then you come to a clearing, so light and shade again, he's always manipulating light and shade, and when you get to the clearing in the middle of the clearing there is the dying gladiator which is a very famous statue, it's a copy of it in stone, yeah. and that again suggestive of war and death, mortality mm-hmm. um, and the great thing about this is that when Kent was designing it, um, General Dormer, who of course had been a, a really important military figure was in fact dying
0: so do you think that, that may be inspired? Oh yeah, I'm
3: sure of it. Mm. I'm sure of it. And this is why, as I say, unless you understand these things, unless you, you know, spend half an hour just reading up about it before you come here, you get so much more out of the garden.
2: That was Timothy Mole from the University of Buckingham. You can read Timothy's feature on English Landscape Gardens in our July issue, which is out now. Also in our July issue, we take a look inside the mind of Richard III, we explore some myths of the Wild West, we find out why the Battle of Bannockburn became so integral to Scottish history, and discover the story of the Victorian letter scammers. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good news agents and digitally. Meanwhile, tickets are still on sale for our 2014 History Weekend Festival, Taking place from the 16th and 19th of October in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury, the festival features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors and broadcasters. For more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the festival website historyweekend.com. And since last week, another talk has sold out, so please do get hold of your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. And now we have a short advertisement break. Available in all major booksellers. July Crisis is a landmark account of the catalytic events
3: that led to the outbreak of the First World War. Here, author Thomas Otty explains what was different about 1914, given that other crises have been managed without an outbreak of war. It seems to me that at the root of the July Crisis 1914, at the root of my book, is that strange dialogue between systemic constraints and the actions of individuals. Um, If individual uh, politicians had taken different decisions, the crisis would have evolved in a different way and it is quite possible that war could have been avoided. Indeed, I'm firmly convinced of the fact that it was not inevitable that war would break out in 1914. Joanna Burke, author of The Story of Pain, discusses how our understanding of pain has changed over time.
1: I really enjoyed writing this book. I think there are a lot of reasons why I became interested in the history of pain. I think the most important reason is that... um it's something we all think we know. It's something we all experience. We all think we know what pain is, and certainly when we're in pain, we do know what it is. But actually, when you look historically, actually we don't know what pain is. And um, I just found that really interesting. I'm fascinated by the different ways that people in the past have understood physical and psychological ailments. I'm really interested in the languages that people have used to talk about their suffering um, and the suffering of other people. Because, of course, pain is not only about us, it's also about our loved ones. It's about people we see in the street who who are suffering and our responses to them.
3: The Story of Pain is now available online and in all major bookshops, priced at £20. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. Now, unless
2: you've been living in a cave these past few weeks, it can't have escaped your attention that the Football World Cup is currently taking place in Brazil. To mark the occasion, our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, interviewed Andreas Kampemar, author of Golazo, A History of Latin American Football. Andreas is the great grandnephew of Dr. Enrique Boero, the man who convinced Jules Rimet to stage
1: the first World Cup in Uruguay. Andreas, um, my first question is, um, why did you decide to, to write a book about the history of Latin American football? Um,
4: it came to me a few years ago. Um, I happen to be a uh, Uruguayan, but I've been brought up in the UK and spent a lot of years here. Um And for Uruguay, uh, football has a lot of significance. Uh, We won the uh, World Cup in 1930 and 1950, but even before that we won gold medals at the Olympics in 1924 and 1928. Um, I sought to uh, write a book essentially about Latin American identity and how football impacts the region. And coincidentally, the book came out just before the World Cup and that's what we were aiming for.
1: One of the first things I noticed when reading the book was that you challenged the myth that football was brought to Latin America by dockers and, and sailors playing football on the quaysides. Um, so, I mean, how did it arrive in Latin America if that if that wasn't the case? Um, it arrived
4: in Latin America through the British, and as we all know, the British are very good with inventing sports, as they invent most sports. But I think the thing about the British was when they came to Latin America, as with other parts. Um, of the globe where they had an empire. In Latin America, they had what I would call an informal empire, i.e. they never really sought to colonize the region. But what they did was they had a hand in you know, economics, infrastructure, etc. So they ran the railways, the electricity companies and what have you. Um, in doing so, they set up clubs and they had their own little clubs where they would all congregate together um, and that was very important for, for you know, Englishmen abroad, as it were. And part of these clubs, they would, you know, would be sporting events. So what they really did was they brought cricket to Latin America first and then a form of kind of rugby come football before the, um, the rules uh, came into play in the... Uh, mid to late uh, 19th century and then of course football but the thing about the british is they never sought to proselytize they never sought to go out and spread the word it just happened that they played the game the latin americans saw that this was something worth playing and took on the game and actually ended up playing it better than the british so essentially what it is it's a british sport that is played at you know at clubs you know, local clubs in Argentina, in Uruguay, in Peru, in Chile, but then suddenly comes out. That's not to say that actually there weren't kickabouts by sailors um, at the docks. You know, everywhere from Brazil through to Argentina, through to Chile and up to Peru to Mexico. But I think it's a rather kind of nice, roseate view of, you know, how
1: football came to the continent. Yeah. So. Did it start life as a sort of an upper-class game then in some ways?
4: Well, I think so, because the thing is, the British were always seen as, of course, more sophisticated. Um, Britain had an empire, etc. So there was that link between these sports and a certain prestige that the British lent, lent to them. And I think, firstly, you know, the local Creole elites started to play. And then it really drilled down into the kind of working classes and you know, immigrant parts of society.
1: So when are we talking? When, when did the masses really start to embrace the game?
4: Well, I think the masses start to embrace the game probably in the smallest sense in the late 19th century, but really in the 1910s and 1920s. And what you see is a lot of clubs. So for instance, Alumni Club, which is uh, an Argentine club uh, that stems from alumni from an English school. Um, they are you know, one of the great Argentine teams, but the problem is they run out of players because you know, unless you're an alumni of the school, you can't really play. Whereas the other local teams have a you know, mass of, uh, you know, of immigrants from which they can choose. So that's what you have. You have these kind of elite clubs dying out and either becoming you know, local clubs that have a kind of broader scope and, um, and then thereby developing into kind of mass clubs.
1: Why did the, the, the people of Latin America embrace a game with, with such passion? Why is football so synonymous with Latin America, you know, to a greater extent even than sort of here in Britain or places like Spain and Italy? Well, I think it just happened to be the fact that they, they were good at it. And um, they
4: were good at it very early and they learned quickly. And it was a game that was easily played. And one of the great mythologies, and this is true, is that all around Latin America um, kids would play on, you know, basically what is kind of wasteland or scrubland, Um, basically a sock or some stocking filled with, you know, a a stone and some newspaper and what have you. and have a kick around. And that's part of the great mythology, because people can afford to buy leather balls. So that's how they played this game. And they became good at it. And they enjoyed playing it. Um, And it wasn't professionalised until much later. But this helped it develop. And I think also the fact that Uruguay won those two gold medals, as I said, in 1924 in Paris and in Amsterdam in 1928, really got the region going, that actually Latin Americans can compete. And then when Uruguay won the 1930 World Cup at home in in Montevideo, um, they then thought, well, you know, this is what we can do. This is what we do, and this is how we compete. And also, going back to, you asked the question as to why I wrote this book is that I realized that the North Americans don't really understand us in Latin America. Western Europe is more interested in, in the Far East or Africa. And so every four years we have this thing, which is the World Cup, where actually Latin Americans really do excel. I mean, it's usually the Brazilians. But, you know, this is something we're very, very good at.
1: Was it to a certain, a certain extent an expression of, sort of freedom and independence after sort of years of domination by European powers? I mean, was football used as a vehicle for that in any respect? Yes,
4: I think it's very similar. I mean, there are great parallels with... Uh, the West Indies uh, cricket culture Um, and CLR James in Beyond a Boundary talks about this that when the West Indies really come to the fore they join the, as I think to quote him the Committee of nations Um, and so to the Latin American states they knew very early on that actually this is something that gave them identity, especially in Uruguay um, my Great-granduncle wrote. He was a diplomat. Wrote a letter to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying, "If we win gold in the 1924 Olympics, we will really become part of, you know, the great nations." And I think for them, it was one a sense of being having their own identity. So each, you know, country having its own discrete identity. Because you have to remember that. Latin America, through the wars of independence in the uh, early to mid-19th century, these are false borders for the most. They're, they're not real borders, as it were. So, football in the 20th century became uh, a way of distinguishing each country from another. So, you know, football, playing, if you're Chilean, you play against Peru, that... Means that you're playing in a different way, and if you're playing in a different way, and you have a different mentality in relation to the game, therefore you have a certain type of Chileanness or a Peruvianness um, that may not be distinct in, uh, in day-to-day life. It gives countries their discrete cultures. So, for instance. All Latin Americans play in a similar way, but yet at the same time they play very differently. So Peru has a more Brazilian flavour. You know, Argentinian and Uruguayan football are very similar.
1: In what way are they similar? So how would um, Uruguayan and Argentinian football, um, how would they be similar and how would they be differentiated from Brazilian football?
4: Well, I think the thing is that you have to go back to the late 19th century um, that... Argentina, Buenos Aires, Argentina's capital, and Montevideo, Uruguay's capital, very close together. There's a geographical proximity, which meant they could play each other regularly, and they had regular matches, both at international and, um, and domestic levels, so club teams, but also Uruguayan and Argentine 11s. And they did this with cricket um, in the 1860s. Um, The thing about the other countries is that if you have a look at uh, Chile, for instance, or Peru, that, you know, if Chile wants to play Argentina, it has to cross the Andes and make a long journey in order to play any kind of competitive match. Uh, Playing Peru, the same thing, you know, it needs to travel north. So what you have is a symbiotic relationship in the River Plate, where they play each other quite often, and that develops the competition. Brazil being further away, um, didn't have that. So Brazil takes longer to develop its football. And I think it's very important that competition and proximity means that, you know, the, the football becomes much more sophisticated. If you look at Mexico and the Central American republics, their football doesn't develop until much later and doesn't become competitive, you know, until, you know, the 1950s and 1960s.
1: How how fierce did these rivalries get between the different nations on you know on the football pitch?
4: Um, they they love and hate each other. I mean, I think Garcia Marquez said um, that he'd never felt he didn't feel that at home in Spain, but he felt at home in most Latin American countries. Even though we're all divided by borders, there is this sense of you know, pan Latin American community, which I think is very important. That even if you're from Uruguay, but you meet a Colombian, there is a sense of a common Latin American culture, even though every country has its own culture. But I think on the football pitch, people take great pride in distinguishing themselves from the others. So, for instance, Brazil and Uruguay have this nice, um, you know, competitive spirit. And one of the reasons for that is because Uruguay beat Brazil in the 1950 World Cup final. And the gates of Maracanã still loom large um, and not as great as before because uh, Brazil has gone on to win numerous World Cups. Um, Argentina and Brazil have a fierce rivalry because they are the two footballing superpowers in the region. There's a rivalry between Chile and Peru, and that goes back to the War of the Pacific in the late 19th century where uh, Peru was decimated by Chile. Uh, Peru shouldn't have been beaten um, by Chile, but they were. So the sense of inferiority still looms large um, in the Peruvian mentality. So Peru, for Peru, let's put it this way. If Peru draws against Argentina, it's really seen as a win. Um, But the big powers in the region are Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and actually Paraguay, which I think, you know, has a great footballing tradition. Um, Although some Paraguayans will say they don't have a style. They are very, very fierce. And they're very heroic in their play. They don't give up. I mean, there's certain thing about Latin American countries is they do give up. You know, if you put two or three goals past them, that's that's it. Whereas, if you have a look at England or Germany or you know the Northern European nations, they do battle till the very end.
1: And um, you talk in the book about sort of the, the intricate relationship between football and politics in Latin America. I mean, when did politicians sort of first realise they could? So use football as a means of furthering uh, their own ambitions?
4: Well, I think it happens early in the sense that uh, politicians become wise to the fact that actually this game, which is, you know, 11 men on each side with a ball and a referee um, umpire, uh, they realise that it attracts the masses. And that becomes very important for Latin American uh, uh, politicians, um, especially populist politicians. So very early on, when, especially if you have a look at Argentina, which hosted large matches, and also Brazil, that politicians do arrive at these matches in the 1910s. And they realize that, you know, people are interested. And actually they, you know, tether themselves to, you know, football Because it engenders a kind of public spirit, a kind of carnival atmosphere, Um, but also its power. And you see that throughout, throughout the 20th century, that every time a nation wins, the politicians, whether they like football or not, and one thing you have to remember is the fact that a lot of Latin American politicians didn't particularly like football. Uh, say Perón, for instance, was ambivalent about the game, but knew that it had this huge power and huge draw in Argentina. And therefore, um, he felt it to be very, very important. So I think for all Latin American politicians, it is an important factor because it just has such a huge following, as is the case here in, in the UK. I mean, it's no different in many respects.
1: And did that apply especially to the World Cup in, uh, in Argentina in 1978? Did a victory there help sustain um, the military regime?
4: Yes, I think so. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I think it gave Argentinians a sense of, you know, things weren't as bad. And there was this, uh, you know, Fiesta, this great party atmosphere afterwards, which actually suspended disbelief, the atrocities that were happening in the country. I think that if Argentina had gone out in the first round, uh, the population may have turned on them. But as we know, it really did take the, uh, you know, the war of the Falklands, uh, the marinas, to, um, to bring an end to the government.
1: And, and uh, on the subject of the Falklands, how important was it to Argentina to beat England in the nineteen eighty six uh, World Cup finals? I mean, did did the Falklands factor really? Was that um, a source of motivation to the Argentinian team?
4: I think so. I think the the way the Malvinas or the Falklands loom large and a part of Argentine identity is not to be underestimated. For a lot of the British, I mean, until 1982, they didn't know where these islands were. Uh, for the Argentines, they see it as part of their, uh, you know, empire, as it were, within the within the region. And I think that every child is kind of brought up with the idea that the Falklands is theirs. Um, the problem for the 1982 squad was when they got to Europe, they realised that. You know, despite the hype and the fact that the propaganda that Argentine, Argentina may have been winning the war, they realized when they came to Europe, it wasn't thus. And then, of course, uh, Britain won. Um, so, by the nine, four years later, I think it was a factor. There are conflicting accounts. I mean, a lot of the Argentines are on record before the match as saying, actually, it has nothing to do with football but actually, after the match, they did change their tune, um, some of them, uh, especially Diego Maradona. And, um, and I think it does have a, a you know, huge influence um, that the Argentines do see the British as pirates. And part of that is the fact that, you know, they occupy, you know, these islands in the South Atlantic, which have a kind of, dubious history um, anyhow I mean Darwin said it was one of the worst places in the world um, so I think it does have an important factor yes
1: um, and why are Latin, Latin Americans so good at football I mean you they basically beat the Europeans at their own game I mean what, what do you you know, what do you think is the reason for that I think it's just enjoying the game
4: I think that's from an early age they They love the ball, and they love doing things with the ball. And also, you have to remember that this is Latin America. So they're prone to that Hispanic or Italian artistry and a sense of vanity as well, i.e., they like to show off. So the thing is, if you give Latin Americans a crowd, they will want to entertain. Whereas, I think, Northern European nations, um, you for the most part, want to get a job done. You know, they want a victory. And actually, sometimes it doesn't really matter how you acquire the victory. But there, there is a sense of artistry. And also, I think the thing is, especially for England, um, and I said this the other day, but I do feel that, you know, English players are somehow scared of the ball. And I think this goes down, comes down to coaching. So if you go to, you know, any Sunday league match or, you know, kids playing in the park, There's always shouting and you hear parents shout this from the sidelines and and coaches, man on, get rid, boot it upfield. And it's the idea of getting rid of the ball, whereas in Latin America, you want to keep the ball and you want to keep the ball for as long as possible. And you want to do things with the ball and you want to evade your marker and dribble around and do all kinds of, you know, tricks. I mean, here in I mean, this country we call it showboating, which probably has, it's got a negative connotation. And that's the thing, whereas there, you know, people do applaud it. Um, and if you have a look at some of great English players, I mean, for instance, Glenn Hoddle. I mean, I think Glenn Hoddle, had he been, you know, Spanish or Latin American or even French, I think he would have had double the number of caps that he did have. Um, And um, you know, I applaud his skill. Um, I think he's one of, you know, the greatest English players that I've seen in my lifetime. But I think someone like that down there would be, you know, par for the course and not seen as a luxury, which he was in England.
1: When did the first Latin American teams tour Europe, and what what kind of impact did they have on the European audience?
4: Uh, The touring teams, that was very important for Latin America because they'd played each other. And by that time, by the 1920s, Uruguay had won its first gold medal in Paris in 1924. But they had played each other and they played each other regularly and they played what was called the South American Championship um, in the 1916 Uruguay won it, and they played one match, I think they beat Chile by four goals to nil, and they fielded two black players, they were black or Afro-Uruguayan players, and the Chileans wanted the match uh, annulled because they thought that Uruguay was cheating by using African slaves. So the thing is they had played each other regularly, Um, but it was only in Europe that Latin American identity was crystallized, and I think this is a very important think to consider, that by coming to Europe and succeeding in Europe, um, and you have, you know, Nacional coming from Uruguay, you have Boca uh, coming from Argentina, you have Brazilian teams, then you have Chilean teams, you have Colo Colo coming to Europe. And in succeeding in Europe, and also remember these these games were, were, were reported on. And there's nothing better for Latin Americans than succeeding abroad. It somehow crystallizes their sense of uruguayan or Argentinianness or chilean um, And I think that's very important, that it somehow meant that the rest of the world were one, watching, and two, they were beating the old world at their game. And I think that was very, very important. For all these teams, not just on a kind of domestic club level, but an on, on an international level. So even if it wasn't your team coming to Europe, the fact that the team was
1: representing your country was very, very important. Um, you mentioned in your book the, the Great River Plate side of the, of the early 1940s. And would you consider them to be the greatest Latin American team of all time or at least the most influential?
4: Yes, I think... Uh, especially because it was the 1940s, and remember that Latin America was isolated at the time. Um, So people watched Argentina. Also, there was a magazine called El Grafico, which uh, still is. I mean, it's a a monthly magazine now, but it was a kind of sporting weekly at the time. And um, it would be, you know, disseminated around the region. And I think that that team loomed large in the imagination of all Latin Americans uh, because not every country had its own sporting publication. So these great wins by River or La Machina, the machine as it was called, um, loomed large in the imagination. So I think of a golden age of football, I think it is, yes, one of the great teams. I would also say Santos. you know, Pele's team um, was also, you know, a great team, um, especially in the 1960s. But I think just for the kind of the glory of the game, I mean, for me, La Machina is probably the great team. And not just, you know, because of its results, but just the way the team played and actually what it meant for the game as well.
1: Um, now, in the 21st century, um, in fact, for the possibly... I guess, as the last 20 years, it seems that the best Latin American footballers have automatically moved to Europe at uh, quite a young age. I mean, what effect is that having on the game at home? Well, the
4: thing is that, you know, the best football is being played in Europe. There's no doubt about that. Um, Latin America is a great exporter of players. Um, Uh, Even though I'm Uruguayan, I still find it amazing that a population of over three million people can produce just one fantastic player after another. Um, Suarez being, you know, I think one of the most exciting players, you know, we have in the UK at the moment. Um, But The thing is that what you find is that Messi, for instance, may be the new breed of Latin American player, i.e. born in the region, but never having played you know, football at senior level. So he doesn't have those allegiances uh, to the kind of grassroots there, which I think is important for for a lot of uh, Latin American players. Um, though it seems not to have made any difference with Messi, who, you know, is an absolutely exceptional player. But um, it's it is an exporter, and actually the football in Latin America is... I mean, to my mind, there's a lot of it. There's probably too much of it, Uh, too many tournaments, um, crazy fixture lists, uh, but it still produces competitive football. Um, I don't think it's particularly good on the whole. Um, And I think that, you know, people, when they go over there, you know, it's great spectacle. But I think in terms of football, it's sometimes rather disappointing, But still, it produces a kind of breed of players that find their way to Europe and all around the world, as it were, um, that do extremely well.
1: Now, I'm just going to quickly turn to sort of the dark side of South American football, and one of the most tragic incidents was 20 years ago, was the killing of Andres Escobar following Colombia's exit from the yeah 1994 World Cup. I mean, how did that come about, Colombia?
4: from the 1940s onwards has been a pretty volatile nation and it hasn't been helped by kind of rampant drug export culture and so you know when you bring you know drugs and the game together there was there would always be fallout we are unsure what happened to Escobar on that night and their various ideas as to what may have happened. But it is one of the great tragedies of, you know, Latin American uh, society. And we see this in in Mexico at the moment, Uh, you know, with cartel killings. He just happened, it could have been anyone else, I think. Um, And he just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Whether he was killed for scoring the own goal You know, I'm not sure. Some people say yes, some people say no. Um, It was just a premise um, that made the tragedy happen. So, you know, Colombia, I mean, it's not as dangerous as people might think, but I think the cartels have never helped, you know, the situation there.
1: Are you surprised that there's been so much uh, unrest in Brazil ahead of uh, this World Cup?
4: Yes and no. Um, I think Brazil has, as a culture, overcome the ghosts of Maracanã of 1950, although Uruguayans will tell you otherwise. Um, But uh, I think they are the world's best tournament team, and I think their record speaks for itself. Um, I'm not surprised, therefore, that people have turned on the World Cup because actually, in many ways, there is nothing left to prove because it has a best World Cup record. Um, moreover, and I think more importantly, it has become, or Brazil has become, everyone's you know, second favorite team. So if your team, if your European team, you know, goes out of the competition, who are you going to support? Probably Brazil. So it's got this worldwide fan base. So I think it's come to terms with, you know, it's football, um, which it didn't for a long time after the 1950 World Cup. Um, you know, it took those quick victories in 1958, 1962, and 1970 to, uh, to put that World Cup, uh, the tragedy of, of 1950, behind it. So I'm not surprised at all. And I'm not surprised that, you know, people have said, well, actually you know, do we really need this here? You know, aren't there, you know, better or more worthy causes for the uh, country to uh, spend, you know, spend its money on? So, no, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's uh, surprised me in the least.
1: Um, now, you're, obviously, you're going to be at the World Cup, so I can't let you go without um, asking for a prediction of how Uruguay are going to get on against England. I
4: I think England have i I'm smiling here, I think England have a pretty good chance. And I think the great thing about England, actually, is, although I don't support them, is the fact that Hodgson, I think, has played a blinder in the sense that there are no expectations at all. You know, for once, there's no idea that we're going to win it. You know, we're going to beat Brazil in Brazil. So I think England may surprise people. And also they've got a young team and actually quite a, you know, uh, dynamic team. So barring injury, etc., I think Uruguay don't fear England. Um, my fear is that Italy in the group, that you know, a few people have spoken about. But in that group, I think Italy is the kind of dark, you know, the dark horse. And I think they are a tough team to beat. But if you want a prediction, um, I think Argentina may do it. And I think Argentina, not just because they have a talented team and they play wonderful football, it's because they will want to beat Brazil in Brazil. And I think that a lot of teams, and I think psychology comes into play. So for instance, a Latin American team would rather play Spain the world champions, than a northern European team. Because Spain, they understand. You know, that football, they know how to deal with. Also, I think there are a lot of Latin Americans who don't rate Spanish football, because, you know, Spanish football, I mean, it doesn't have the same illustrious history um, as Latin American football. And has only um, started to come to the fore, you know, in the last five years or so. So I think that's important. But I think, you know, Uruguayans would rather play Spain than play Germany, for instance. And I think, you know, the Argentinians have learned this, that actually playing Germany is tough. You know, it's not easy. So in the last World Cup of memory serves me, right, you know, they, you know they were massacred Argentina was massacred by Germany but then for weeks or so a couple of months after the World Cup Spain the world champions went down to Argentina I think were beaten 4-0 or something so psychologically um, it's important and I think a lot of you know European teams will go there and feel they won't be able to beat Brazil at home thing about Argentina is I think Argentina will feel they can take Brazil and I think nothing will give them more pleasure than beating Brazil in Brazil, and if it comes to it, a final. That was Spencer Mizen talking to
2: Andreas Campomar. Golazzo, a history of Latin American football, is out now, published by Quirkus. And of course, if you're in the UK, you can watch games from the World Cup live on BBC television and listen on BBC radio. OK, so that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of them in the future. The debate on our theme music continues to run. Bernd, who's listening from Germany, has written in to say, please do not change your theme music. Meanwhile, Andrew Watts, whose comments began this discussion, has got back in touch to say, hooray for the lady who agreed with me about the theme tune. How about The Clash, London Calling? Iconically and unmistakably British, arguably historic in the social sense anyway, and wholly appropriate for the BBC. Thanks for that, Andrew, and please do keep your thoughts coming in. And as well as email, you can also get in touch with us on social media. On Twitter, we're at History Extra, and on Facebook, we're also History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, galleries, quizzes, articles, and you can also listen to previous episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007. Next week we're going to be joined by Kwasi Kwarteng to discuss the history of finance and war, and Richard Van Emden will be explaining what life was like for First World War soldiers. Do listen in for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Oxfordshire and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.